Our Father and our God, during this Advent season, we come before you to hear the good news, the good news that in a manger long ago was born a Savior. And we pray, Father, that that message might evoke from us adoration and praise for the glory of our God. We thank you, Father, and ask you to open this word to us this morning so that we would exalt in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of uh, my bosses, that is one of my senior pastors in the Morgantown, West Virginia church uh, was David Gooden. Some of you perhaps know David. David, interestingly enough, grew up in a Pentecostal church. His father and his grandfather were both Pentecostal pastors and preachers. I really don't know how David ended up in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, after law school, he went to a Presbyterian seminary, and I guess after you have been Pentecostal and you go to a Presbyterian seminary, all that's left to you is the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, but David grew up Pentecostal and with a rich Pentecostal heritage, and, and actually even as a teenager, he himself was preaching in his father's church. And he used to tell me stories about his experiences, and, uh, and as you know, our, our uh, dear Pentecostal friends can be quite demonstrative in, in their worship expressions, especially during preaching. Uh, you know, I, I like to teach in settings when there is an interaction between teachers and, and students, and we've done that here from time to time, but when we've done that, we've had to kind of set it up and give some instruction about how to do that kind of thing. But I have to tell you, you don't have to tell Pentecostals how to interact with their preachers. <laughs> Whatever the preacher said, and sometimes every sentence or two, somebody in the congregation would respond audibly. Amen, that's right, that's the obvious one. But, but that, is, that is hardly the only thing that could be said. I mean, if you go to those services, you'll, you'll hear things like, preach it, brother, or that's right, or bless you, brother, or hallelujah. Hear all those kinds of things. David told me about one woman in particular in his father's church. Uh, she would say all of those kinds of things, you know, amen, hallelujah, preach it, brother. But then every now and then, after the preacher would say something, she'd say, well... At least she was discriminating in her exclamations. Now, I know that many of you wanted to say that from time to time in my preaching also. One of the things our Pentecostal friends would say during the preaching was just this word, glory. Just glory. Not glory, hallelujah. They would say that too, but just glory. Just glory. If there's ever a time to just exclaim glory, it's as we unpack today's text in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're in a series entitled The Songs of the Incarnation, and we've had two of them that we have examined. The Magnificat, Mary's song, was the first one, sung in response to the angel Gabriel's message that she would be with child by the Holy Spirit, and that the child would be the Son of God, 
to which Mary would exclaim in song, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And then we looked last week at the Benedictus, which is Zechariah's song. Once Elizabeth, his wife, his aging wife, had delivered uh, their promised child. You remember that Zechariah had spent the entirety of her pregnancy, nine months, essentially as a deaf mute, because he hadn't believed the angel's announcement. When she delivered and it was time for the baby to be named, Zechariah wrote down in obedience to the instruction of, of the angel that the baby's name would be John. And his tongue was loosed. And he sang, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And so today we have the third of the songs of the incarnation. But it is sung not by the human characters in the narrative, but by the angels. Gloria in excelsis Deo is the angel's song. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The essence of this entire narrative is simply glory. Glory to God in the highest, but simply abbreviated by uh, the saying glory. There is glory everywhere, everywhere an occasion for which we not only praise God, but we are stunned and awestruck by his magnificent sovereign orchestration of the loving redemption of his people. And as we begin to unpack this narrative, we set it in context. It is the context of the, of the machinations of the world's power players, one in particular, Caesar Augustus, a great man by all accounts, one of the greatest political leaders in human history. But just as the beauty of a diamond is best displayed against the backdrop of black velvet, so the glory of God shines ever more brightly against the black backdrop of human pretensions of power. We first of all see the potentate as a pawn in the hand of God. Luke chapter 2 begins this way, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. I mean, what an audacious decree from the most powerful human on the planet, a decree to register, listen, every human being in all of the inhabited earth. Why? Why would Augustus want to register every human? Well, because one of the greatest gifts the Romans have ever bequeathed to us is taxation. By the way, that's sarcasm for those of you who are prone to take things literally, just so you don't misunderstand. Now, if you live in Washington, D.C., and if you own a car, your license plate has the statement on it, taxation without representation. It is a reminder that Washington, D.C., because it is a, a federal property and not a state, does not have a voting representative in Congress. Now, if you were in Rome back in the days of Augustus and you had a license plate on your chariot, it would read, no taxation without registration. And so you had to be registered in Rome. And so Augustus issues his decree that all must be registered, and the result was a massive movement of people to go to their home city. Mail-in registration wasn't acceptable. 
You had to go in person. So Joseph and Mary, like hundreds, even thousands of others, did that. Augustus had flexed his imperial muscle, and all the world responded. Now, you and I might try our best to avoid the IRS, but no one was avoiding the Romans. But little did Augustus know, in fact, and I'm sure he never knew, that he was just a pawn on the cosmic chessboard, a mere servant of the Almighty God, who in his grand plan of redemption was the real people mover, the one who puts people in just the right places at just the right time, all to fulfill his loving and redemptive purposes. And the potentate as pawn is the first demonstration of the glory of God in this passage. And as we consider what God did in maneuvering the most powerful human on the planet for his own redemptive purposes, we simply must cry out, glory. Why did Augustus, why did God use Augustus this way? Why did he use this audacious, prideful, self-serving decree of the emperor in the way that he did, moving people all over the globe? Well, in a word, it was to fulfill prophecy. In a sense, it was to fulfill the prophecy that was issued by Mary in the Magnificat. You'll remember that. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. But even more importantly, God acted this way to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. The child to be born to Mary, the Son of God, had to have credentials, you see, credentials. I went to Bill Herod's birthday party yesterday, his 100th birthday party. He was sitting next to a table filled with all kinds of memorabilia of his life. And when I greeted him, he pointed to the table and said, these are my credentials. I said to him, no, Bill, the only credential you need is the badge you are wearing on your chest, which simply said 100. But the incarnate Son of God did have to have credentials. Also, the world would know undeniably that he is who he said he was and that the Bible declares him to be the incarnate Son of God. And much of his credentials revolve around his human descent from King David. And so here in this text, we have a double mention of his Davidic credentials. Verse 4 of chapter 2, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. We've already seen prophecies in Luke which establish Davidic credentials for Jesus, the angel told Mary back in chapter 1, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, sings and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The New Testament is clear that the Messiah, the Son of God, must be a direct descendant of David. So Paul opens his gospel and he says, Paul, excuse me, his book of Romans, and he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his sons, who was born, or son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. 
And he tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Bethlehem was the city of David, the hometown of the great king, which was why Joseph and Mary had to go there, because it fulfills the prophecy in Micah chapter 5. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so for Jesus to be recognized as the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, he had to have credentials. Being a descendant of David and being born in David's hometown were his credentials. His birth certificate said Bethlehem for place of birth. And it said David for family. And Jesus was the only one to do all the amazing things that he did fulfill and fulfill those prophecies and more and be born in Bethlehem and be a direct descendant of David. If you know anyone else who fits those criteria throughout human history, let us know because we should be following that person. But no, only Jesus fulfills those qualifications. Only Jesus has those credentials. Only Jesus is a card-carrying Son of God Messiah. He is the card-carrying Son of God, Messiah. He has all the credentials. And that's why, once again, the people should cry out, glory. One of the things God does to display his glory is to use insignificant people and insignificant things. Things that the world values very little. Things that the world wouldn't pay the slightest bit of attention about. And that's the next demonstration of God's glory. Verse 6, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no one less important, less significant in the eyes of the world. Indeed, in the eyes of Caesar Augustus, who, who would never even know their names, than Joseph and Mary and the baby that Mary would birth. But think of the true identity of this baby. Yes, he was Mary's firstborn son, as the text says, but he was so much more. Colossians says he was the firstborn over all creation. He was the one and only Son of God in the Gospel of John. He was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, as it says in Revelation 21. He was the maker of all things, as it says in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords in Revelation chapter 19. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Colossians chapter 2. Every attribute of deity applies to this child. He was all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-glorious. So what kind of reception did this child deserve? How should this world have received him? Well, every Jew in Israel-Palestine should have come to that manger and worshipped him. In fact, every Gentile, for that matter, should have come as well. Indeed, every creature, from ants to alligators, should have come to worship him. Philip Ryken puts it this way, he deserved to have the creation itself offer him worship with the rocks crying glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is God the Son and anything less than absolute acknowledgement of his royal person is an insult to his divine dignity. 
That's what he deserved. But what kind of reception did he receive? She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. He got the reception of the most insignificant human being imaginable. Wrapped in whatever cloths Mary could scrounge and laid in a manger, in other words, stuck in a pile of hay in a feeding trough for cattle. Riken puts it this way, when the Son of God came to earth, the maker of the universe, in all its vast immensity, he couldn't even get a room. But that's how God glorifies himself. He uses the most insignificant to accomplish the greatest in human history, the redemption of the human race. And that was God's pattern throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. The sufferings of the incarnation would be reprised and culminated in the crucifixion. The swaddling clothes would become a burial shroud. The manger would become a tomb. We are saved by the abject humility of our Savior, and all the glory goes to God. And that's why we all cry out, glory. We, we humans cry glory. But heaven can't keep silent about what God has done either. Angels show up in this story. Verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And now, dear friends, there are angels, and then there are angels. A lot of times the angels God sends look pretty much like us. That was the case with the episode with Abraham and, and Lot as you recall, they appeared as men, but they were actually angels, and that's why the Bible says that we might actually be entertaining angels unaware when he helps the poor, when we help the poor in Hebrews chapter 13. But then at other times, angels are extraordinary creatures, like the seraphim with six wings singing holy, holy, holy in the presence of God, or like the cherubim of Ezekiel, well, this latter episode was of that kind, the kind that by his very appearance evokes shock and terror in the lives of these shepherds. And whatever he looked like, he was surrounded by the glory of the Lord shining. And eventually he was joined by others, a whole bunch of them. Verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. We might get the impression that there are angels all over the Bible, but that is really not the case. The presence of angels is really rather rare, but they do show up when it counts. And when the incarnate Son of God shows up to redeem a lost humanity, the incarnate Son of God prophesied for thousands of years by Old Testament prophets, when that happens, the angels show up in spades and they visibly display the glory of God. This is angelic glory. They sing glory to God in the highest, and we would do well to join them, and so we ourselves cry out glory. And then there is gospel glory. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
This is gospel glory. Gospel means literally good news. Uh, it's the word from which we get our word evangel. Euangelizo is good news in the Greek. It is the root of our word evangelist or evangelism or evangelical. And the good news is delivered to shepherds, to shepherds of all people. Why shepherds? Well, first of all, it's to fulfill prophecy. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 13. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, but in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. And then a couple of verses later, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. In other words, God would send the Messiah when shepherds were watching their flocks in the environs of Jerusalem. And that's where Bethlehem is. It's in the outskirts of Jerusalem. But shepherds were also chosen in addition to, to this prophetic word because of God's delight to use the insignificant to accomplish his purposes. Because they lived out in the fields, they could not observe the ceremonial law, so they were always considered by most of the Jews to be unclean. They were also thought to be liars and thieves in terms of their character, so their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. And with the exception of lepers, shepherds were the lowest class of people in Israel-Palestine at that time. They were the blue-collar, working-class sinners. But that's why God chose them. Remember Mary's Magnificat. He has exalted those who were humble. The good news is for the shepherds, and that's one of the ways that the prophecy is fulfilled. So God's first declaration of the good news was to these insignificant shepherds. In fact, there is an interesting twist in the angel's declaration. It says, for today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior. Now, usually we would say that to parents. Today there has been born to you, Mary, or to you, Joseph, a baby. But no, the angels say this to the shepherds. Today there has been born to you. The baby is for you, shepherds. And that's the really good news part of all of this. If the baby born is for the shepherds, he is born to you, too, and you, and you, and he was born to you. Do you need a Savior, dear friends? He was born to you. Anybody who has an ounce of self-awareness and an ounce of world awareness knows that we need a Savior, and that Savior is Christ the Lord, and that's the good news. That's gospel glory, and once again we cry out, glory. And then there is heavenly glory, the actual content of the heavenly message. Verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. That's what this has all been about from beginning to end. 
God was from eternity past throughout human history preserving a line of redemption through the ancestry of King David so that through the birth of an insignificant child to the household of a blue-collar construction worker through the womb of a poor teenager, God would provide the Savior of all of those who would ever believe in him so that only God would get the glory because only God could orchestrate and execute such an incredible plan of redemption. And the result of it all is peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace. Peace. Oh, do we ever need peace. We need peace with God. Because, dear friends, by nature we are his enemies. We, are, have, we have transgressed his law. We have violated his character. And only Jesus can bring us the peace we need. And we need peace with one another only because we have been extended forgiveness of our sins by Christ can we then extend forgiveness to others. Only in Christ can there be peace in relationships. Only in Christ can there be genuine reconciliation. Whether it's in your household, your family, your community, your nation, the world, our only hope in peace is Jesus Christ. And that peace is available. It is available, but not just to anybody. The text says, peace among men with whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased. Well, he is pleased with those who surrender self and cast oneself on the mercy of Christ and believe in Jesus and trust in Christ and have faith in Christ. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. For he he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So, dear friends, do you want peace? Then cast yourself on his mercy, and you too will be able to sing with the angelic host, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Then there is experiential glory in this passage. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, The shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. In other words, they just didn't sit out there all night after the angel's message and say, Hey, thanks a lot for for the message. That sounds really good. No. They said, Let's go. Let's go. Let's see this thing. Let's experience this for ourselves. All genuine Christians seek to experience the good news for themselves, to have a relationship with Jesus, to walk in faith with Jesus, to trust Jesus superintending all of our details, some of which can be quite perplexing, to obey Jesus' commands and so experience his grace and provisions. And the more we experience Jesus, the more we cry out, glory. And then there is treasured glory. We just don't receive the good news, and we don't just even experience the good news. We treasure it. We treasure it. Verse 17, when they had seen this, the shepherds made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart, wondering, treasuring, 
pondering. The shepherds wondered about all this. The people the shepherds told wondered about all this. Mary herself treasured all these things. And so the true believer, for the true believer, a day doesn't go by when we don't wonder at the great salvation provided for us in the birth of this baby, the Son of God incarnate. And every time we wonder, every time we treasure, every time we ponder, we cry, glory. Finally, we have worshipful glory. Verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. The whole experience from beginning to end evokes worship. The angels sing glory to God in the highest, and the shepherds learn the song. Yes, you too can learn a new song. The shepherds hadn't cared anything about God before, but now, now they adopt the chorus of the angels and make it their own, and they worship, and they cry, glory. Have you learned the angels' song, dear friends? Have you? Can you sing Gloria in excelsis Deo? Not in Latin. Can you sing glory to God in the highest? We were made to do that because of Jesus Christ and because of what happened on this particular occasion. May glory be to God in the highest. Heavenly Father, we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. With wonder, adoration, praise, make us responsive to this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and give us a song to sing so that we might join the angels in that heavenly chorus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.